0: Welcome back to South African Border Wars with me, your host, Des Latham. This is episode 64. In February 1980, Robert Mugabe's ZANU movement was about to win the first Zimbabwean election managing to scrape a small majority. They won 57 seats out of 100, so not exactly a landslide then. In April, Mugabe would officially be declared Prime Minister and the country would become independent from the United Kingdom. On the 1st of April, The Southern African Development Coordination Conference was set up with Angola, Botswana, Lesotho, Malawi, Mozambique, Swaziland, Tanzania, Zambia, and Zimbabwe signing up. South Africa was a noticeable absentee because the main reason for the SADCC was to wean the other Southern African states off South Africa's economy. Zimbabwe immediately felt the pain. South Africa stopped exporting fertilizer within a few months, then cancelled the trade agreement with the National Railways of Zimbabwe. Harari turned to Mozambique and in particular the Beira Corridor and Zimbabwe began exporting and importing products via this vital route which terminated in Beira. There was also that all-important oil pipeline which had been closed through the Bush War and which was going to be reopened. Before all of this started, planning of another type was underway. The Rekis and the Rhodesian SAS wanted one more opportunity to attack Robert Mugabe who was living in Maputo. By now, killing Mugabe had become an obsession. Three previous attempts had failed, as you know. The new operation was set for January 1980 and called Trample and was a repeat of a previous op that missed Mugabe. This mission was to be conducted by the SAS's Zebra Group under Major Wilson. A new South African Navy strike craft under Commander Andrew Rennie was called the SAS France Erasmus and was to support the Raiders. Captain Woodburn, newly promoted, would be ops commander. Once again, the teams trained, then headed off to Durban, and after dark one night they boarded and turned out to sea. It took twenty four hours, and then they were off Maputo and the launch position of around eight nautical miles north of Inyaka lighthouse. As if by some kind of divine intervention, things did not go smoothly once again. A third boat had a problem, this delayed everything, and the wind and swells began to rise so the mission was postponed and the strike craft headed out to sea to regroup and have a think. The recce suggested that a second strike craft join the mission, and Commander Johann Ratif's SAS Jim Fushi just happened to be off Richards Bay. He was told to sail north and join up with the Franz Erasmus. But first, the Foushee docked at Richards Bay to pick up motors and a boat flown into the harbour town by Dakota, then took off after dark to join the other strike craft just off Maputo. It was going to be another frustrating night, as you're going to hear. The three small boats were dropped into the ocean with their crew of Rikis and Rhodesian SAS. This time, they were far closer and inside Maputo Bay. The idea was to launch on the northeast side, near the Shafina Channel, which would shorten the time needed to head to the beach. The idea was good, if all the boys had their lights working, which they weren't. It's typical of Maputo. Even today, the infrastructure is ramshackle to put it mildly. Captain Woodburn realized there was a real risk of grounding the boats, so he ordered the France Erasmus to reverse course, and they exited the channel, then headed back to the rendezvous point, 50 nautical miles east of Punta d'Oro. Despite the fact that the wind was up, they decided to move all the raiders to the France Erasmus from the Jim but disaster struck on the return, a boat overturned throwing the crew and the equipment into the sea. The crew swam to safety, and some operators dived into the ocean to recover the floating gear. Luckily, none of their weapons or ammunition was lost. Then, after some maintenance on the outboards, the two strike craft headed back into Maputo Bay the next night. This time they used the south channel, with the Franz Erasmus in the lead. It was a good night, no wind, and they could make out the lights of the channel. Then they spotted a ship at anchor close by. The strike craft slowed down to 10 knots to make less noise and after a few tense moments, the two crafts sped up again and entered the bay at a speed of 18 knots, heading southwesterly. The small boats were launched once more and they hit the beach in good time where the raiders were dropped off and the Zodiacs withdrew to beyond the breakers in the dark. The SAS headed quickly for the target then realized they were further north than they had planned and had to cross a main beach road. As they walked across, a car approached and the SAS operators were in its lights. So they stopped the vehicle, but the occupants realized they were being apprehended by non mozambicans and struggled to get away. Things began to unravel because at that moment four policemen appeared. The raiders opened fire with their American 180 silenced machine guns, killing three, but the fourth policeman escaped into nearby bushes. Mission aborted, the raiders rushed back to the beach, and the three boats roared up into the surf, picked up the SAS, and headed out to sea in the channel. Looking back as they thundered out into the bay, the SAS could see the road was awash with blue lights. Mozambique authorities had arrived incredibly quickly and the mission abort decision was not only correct, it was just in time. The three boats rendezvoused with the strike craft and it was back to South Africa and the last attempt at killing Mugabe in Mabuta was over. All four attempts had failed. This was also the last combined operation featuring four reccees and the Rhodesian SAS. Later, in 1980, the Rhodesian SAS began to suspect that someone inside the Salisbury government had possibly been feeding warnings to Mugabe about the planned attacks. At least, that's what some SAS vets told Forecki's Doe stain, and he put this on the record in his book, Iron Fist from the Sea. There would be many more operations along the Mozambique coast, as well as in Angola, and I'll return to some of these in later podcasts. But right now, we must head forwards back to 1982. Remember, we left off a few episodes ago after the Swapo operation into the Triangle of Death, just south of Bawamberland, in the Tsumeblokal. There were a few small ops in the remainder of 1982, leading to a major incursion into Angola in December called Operation Askari. I'll deal with the plans in episode 65, but first, in May 1982, SADF Intelligence reported that radio messages had been intercepted indicating that Swapo was busy again in the area around Ongkongkua, which is northwest of Ryokana. Operation Boomslang began at 1800 on the 13th of May when 32 Battalion Tactical HQ in Kuamato was told to prepare a company and two reconnaissance teams for an airborne assault on the Swapo base at Ongkongkua. 3-2 Battalion requested that the reccees check on Concours to verify these reports. Unfortunately, the request was denied with the of saying there wasn't enough time. Then two Pumas airlifted the company of men 20 kilometers northwest of the target on the 14th of May. They laid up overnight. At 1100 on the 15th, two eight-man offensive recce teams were flown into positions just north of Kuamato, and they set up ambushes on the road. Then, just before midday, all 25 members of the main assault group were choppered into a point to the southwest of the town in a puma, but a second puma had technical problems and was grounded. Alouette gunships were mobilized, and the assault on Onkongkua began at 1230, but as 3-2 battalion moved in, it was clear the town had been abandoned. A patrol was dispatched into the bush to the north, but after five kilometers of trekking, they turned around because there was no sign of Swapo or of Fapla. Back in the town, the company moved from building to building, only to find that the main doors to an abandoned hospital had been booby-trapped. They blew it up using a bunker bomb. Then searched the small hospital, finding nothing. The next day, the sixteenth of May, fifteen troops were flown further northwest of Anconque. Vehicle tracks were picked up, but nothing else. And by ten hundred hours thirty, three two battalion was on its way back to Riocona. In two days of sweeping the felt. A small tribe of Obihimba people were contacted and they said that Fapla had evacuated the town two years before while the vehicle tracks belonged to government patrols which only visited monthly. The villagers confirmed there were no Swapo in the area and this entire op irritated 3-2's men for its waste of time. Had the Rekis been dispatched as they had requested they could have concentrated their energies elsewhere. Speaking of time and money the far eastern area of Ovambaland had experienced some peace and quiet for some time and by 1981 the Kavango farming area of Mangeti was clean. It had avoided the insurgency that had characterized the central region. It was due to a number of factors, not least a highly successful hearts and minds campaign launched by Bilim Rutter of 3-2 Battalion's Reconnaissance Wing. Always highly situationally aware, Rutter had noticed that Swapu tended to use the Nkongo route Around 60 kilometers west of Umauni as their main infiltration path. But it was in 1981 that Swapo also realized that it could cut time it took to reach Ovambaland in half if it set up camps and caches in the Kavango. The only problem was the black residents in Kavango were totally opposed to Swapo, unlike their brethren further west. Captain Rutter knew that keeping Swapo out here was critical so he decided on setting up strong points through the Mangeti and around the Nkongo route. This idea is not new. The Americans had used a similar tactic in Vietnam where they tried to win over the hearts and minds of the Vietnamese by strengthening defences in villages around the Ho Chi Minh Trail. But the SADF was not wild about the idea of training up villages in the Kavango, at least initially, and by May of 1981, Swapo had spotted the gap and was beginning to move through this region unchecked. And Swapo also began to become more emboldened and killed two headmen at Ohikik and Oshatotwa. By October, Sector 20 commanding officers decided they'd support Rata's plans in something they called Operation Spiderweb. The village of Ohikik lies around 40 kilometres west of the Kobanga River, almost directly on the Katlan, and was the focus of the first initiative. Families of the murdered headmen would be moved here then trained to fight against Swapu. Soon after the move, 10 troops from 3 battalion were sent to support these villages and they were in constant radio contact with the main base at Umauni. Rata also ensured that one of the women at the village was trained in nursing by the doctor at Umauni and that a clinic be set up at Ohikik. Southwest African government departments such as Agriculture, Health and Education were asked to assist. At first, the bureaucrats responded positively, with Colonel Gertnell authorizing a first phase of development. The troops moved over under Staff Sergeant Ron Gregory and they formed the nucleus of a quick reaction force in Ohokik. By December 1981, families from villages such as Ongwea and Oshatotwa and smaller locales in a radius of around 25 kilometers had agreed to move into this strong point. The only local chief who remained outside was Chief Silas, who had 20 Home Guard civilian troops protecting his family and his people under the aegis of the Obamble authorities. This hearts and minds campaign seemed to work well, and by February 1982 there were 60 men and some women based at Ohikik. 22 were armed with R1s, while a doctor and a chaplain from 3-2 Battalion paid courtesy calls regularly, and Staff Sergeant Tunes Ilof set up a rudimentary woodwork factory. Local residents began to turn out utensils and decorative goods from the teak, an amazing wood that grew throughout the region. Then maize and tobacco were distributed monthly. Rata, though, wasn't finished. He knew education was the key to furthering the aims of the SADF, and while traveling through the neighborhood, he spotted an abandoned prefabricated building at Alukula. That's further west, also quite close to the cut line. Rutter had the building dismantled and moved to Omuni, where it was rebuilt near the main gate and formally declared the school was open. Some of the kids who attended that year walked 20 kilometers every day to make it to class, hosted by a part time teacher, Private Kuni Brits, who also happened to be the base clerk. By May of 1982, the strong point at Ohikik was holding, and the locals were supporting this initiative because it serviced their main needs. And yet, Swapu kept up their infiltration. They just moved the trail further south by passing the Ohikik strongpoint. They had been crossing this area from east to west before turning south into a and now they moved even further south of a place called Chandelier Road. Eventually, Chief Silas was murdered in early June 1982, despite his 20 well-armed guards and his family finally withdrew to Nkongo. The SADF began to understand the importance of these armed settlements and granted permission to set up others at Ongalulu, Ombumbo and Omamishu. But then the bureaucrats got cold feet. They delayed the implementation of structures and even the cash required to build these new strongpoints. The only one that survived through the period was Ohikik, and when Omowini was handed over to the newly formed Southwest African Special Forces later in 1982, everything fell apart. Moving back westwards from this eastern area, and by May 1982, Swapo had begun trying to expand the area of the war once more. So Mirage 2 and Canberra Photographic Aircraft were given permission to fly into Angola, something that the political leadership had halted for almost a year. Captain Martin Lowe and Lieutenant John Ings were in the Air Force Base on Dungua Ops Room on standby on the 13th of May, about to brief two Mirage FICZ pilots who'd arrived the day before with three squadron. At 1,600 hours, they were ordered to carry out an armed reconnaissance mission over Kuvelai, which is about 140 kilometers directly north of Ondangwa. Oshikati radioed that they would hot intel that a helicopter carrying senior military staff, possibly Cubans and maybe Angolans, on its way to Kuvelai, and they were planning to attend a conference. Their task was to shoot it down. Armed with R550 missiles and 30mm cannon, the pair of Mirages took off at 1,600 hours 35 with Lieutenant Ings as the leader and climbed through 20,000 feet, heading directly for Kuvulai. It took 15 minutes and they were overhead, but had to remain at 16,000 feet to avoid the anti-aircraft fire. A few minutes later, Ings spotted an MI-8 chopper in a field south of the town, near a famous S-bend in the road. They positioned themselves for an air-to-ground attack from the west, out of the sinking sun, and Ings rolled in first, opening up this 30mm cannon, but the rounds burst past the chopper. Lowe followed him in, and he was on target, walking his shells up to the mr 8 and it exploded in a fuel fireball. Both pilots turned and headed home. Mission complete. The next day, Commander Dick Lord and Captain Jan Henning took off to hit a railhead in the province of Jamba, close to a mining area. North of Kasinga. They took out the railway line and flew back. Things seemed to be going well in the air war. Then on the 15th of May, the busy weekend got busier. Four Mirage AZs and four CZs took off with the order to attack a Swapo base northeast of Kasinga. Forty eight Mark 82 bombs hit the base, half of these armed with contact fuses, the other had limbo air burst fuses. It's not known how many casualties Swapo took in this raid. But the saf was wasn't finished this may weekend at 1400 hours 30 nine mirage Azs lifted off and headed to another logistics base just south of mulondo which is about 100 kilometers southwest of kasinga it's on the kaneni river and was being used by Swapo as a drop-off point for equipment and the low level approach caught the aa guns napping ammunition and arms dumps were destroyed in that attack then a little later Three Buccaneers headed off from Grootfontein for a strike on an airfield near Kasinga. This time they'd use the initial point medium toss, or IPMT, profile. Each aircraft had eight 460 kilogram bombs. The way the IPMT profile worked was the Buccaneers would thunder towards the target at low level, around 100 feet AGL, then pull up around 4 nautical miles from the target. They'd release the bombs and plunged back to the safety of low level once more. The first run, though, was a miss. They didn't drop their bombs and lined up once again. Flying at over 580 knots and at 100 feet, they were in attack formation when a unique situation that could have been catastrophic developed. Suddenly, bombs began falling from the wings and bomb bay of the lead buccaneer, just missing a pilot by the name of Lapis Labaskagni. The attack was aborted and they flew back to Grootfontein to find that the lead aircraft's system had failed, with La telling all in sundry how big a half-ton bomb looked when it flew past his canopy at 580 knots. A day later, it was Kahama's turn to be bombed. It's a town that has featured quite often in our story so far, and on the 17th of May, eight Mirage AZs and four CZs were dispatched to attack this town, which is around 100 kilometers northwest of zangongo the mirages pulled up to 18000 feet just before kahama then dived out of the rising sun into a barrage of anti-aircraft fire the town was famous for its defensive system and on that day it was no different with heavy 23 millimeter and 57 millimeter fire just missing the mirages the bombing complete they headed back to andangwa the ground crew quickly rearmed the planes in 3 hours and then the pilots were back off to Jamba province, and this time it was even more difficult. They were targeting a Cuban position south of an airfield, and this bombing run was in response to increased Cuban support of SWAPO. Three formations of Mirage F-1s attacked the Cuban base from the west, but the South Africans now faced an extremely menacing weapon, the ZSU-23-4 Shilka battery. It's a mobile weapon on tracks, a four-barreled rapid-firing beast that lays a curtain of explosive rounds in the sky, peppering any aircraft in the vicinity. When the shells explode, it's like a white curtain that appears, but none of the mirages were hit. Out of the corner of the pilot's eyes, though, they spotted a Soviet-built twin-engine Antonov-26 transport plane on the ground, but the defensive fire was too heavy to try and take this out. And so ended one of the busiest weekends for the SA Air Force in recent months. The next day, all the mirages headed back to their respective bases in South Africa, following what was seen as a highly successful three days, the air and sea war proved that the border conflict was only just getting going, and the SADF were also planning something big for the end of 1982 called Operation Ascari. I've spoken to a few vets of this op, and I'll share some of these stories with you as we cover the next few months of the border wars. One story in particular beggars belief, as you're going to hear. Please rate the podcast on iTunes; it makes the series more visible. And you can head off to abwarpodcast.com and you can mail me there if you want, or direct message me if you're in a rush on Twitter at Desleth. Until next, goodbye.